Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 196. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, what a blessing to be able to meet with people week after week and have these Bible studies via the internet. Lord, I'm so blessed to be able to share my thoughts with other people, to pour through um, the scriptures uh, through the week with a goal of sharing that which you've shown me um, with people who gather with me during these live studies. I'm so thankful that they've taken time out of their busy schedules to be with me. So I pray that you'll um, give us a, an enlarged capacity to understand truth, to appreciate it, to, um, to navigate through it. Um, if for not, not for your spirit, Lord, the words would be um, just only so much, what we would say, intellectual nutrition. I mean, but... We want to be able to have a meaningful study so that the words sink deep down into our spirit and affect a change in our lives. And so that's why we study. Uh, we seek to please you and to honor you by this particular mechanism. And we want to be those types of people who are following after you with our heart, um, with our mind, with our strength. Um, we seek to uh, be a witness to those around us who don't yet know the great hope that we claim. Um, so for that reason, Lord, give us divine appointments. Help us to continue to hold fast to uh, the truths that are foundational to what we believe uh, about the Bible. And um, Lord, just continue to protect us uh, because the opposition is is growing. Uh, the darkness is getting darker. Uh, the evil days are getting more evil. Uh, but we know these are all signs of your soon second coming. And so we've just got to... Um, brace ourselves in to continue to prepare ourselves uh, for the uh, the attacks uh, that are just happening. So thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Help us to um, be diligent, uh, continue to bless us, protect us, provide for us, and uh, give us a, a, a joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Okay, these are the live internet studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. It's a hour-long study, live study. Join us via Skype one of these weeks on a Saturday afternoon uh, from uh, 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. Uh, you can see the announcements right in the middle of my study for more details. But we'd love to have you. It's a free study. There's no cost to you. Um, and I'm delighted to be able to bring the studies to you. If you're watching this YouTube video, this is part one of five, so, uh, of five videos in the um, set of the topic that we're dealing with. The Hour-long study is broken up into two 30-minute segments. This is the first of those 30-minute segments of the, of the hour-long study. First 30-minute segment is a study on Matthew 9, 14 through 17, like you see on my screen right now. Um, the title of the study, uh, Are Judaism and Christianity Incompatible with One Another? It's largely a study on replacement theology, but we are dealing with topics such as the relevancy of Torah observance in our lives as Christians and things like that. So I'm welcoming your questions and comments that you leave uh, via email or that you upload to my YouTube channel, put in the comment section, things like that. Um, I love that interaction. Um, tell me your thoughts. If you agree with me or if you disagree, tell me why. Um, and we can have a dialogue about that. Let's start by reading uh, the passage real quick. I, I won't uh, wax long on um, the, the, uh, the different versions of the Bible because we already hit those in different uh, studies. But if you look on my screen right now, I've got Matthew 9, 14 through 17 pulled up out of the ESV. Let me read it for you. Starting in verse 14, quote, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? 
So Jesus responds in verse 15. Jesus says to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And then he gives them some practical sense advice. Or, I mean, it's an answer to the question, but listen to the practicality of it, right? Common sense. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So he just answers the question, hey, you know, why would you fast at a wedding? Hello, why would you mourn at a wedding? It's a time of rejoicing. And then he gives two parables that seem to reinforce the um, common sense aspect of um, taking the right approach in any given situation, but they're both riddled with... Um, a little bit of mystery and a little bit of um, allegory. I mean, they, they're begging for some, some further elucidation. He says in verse uh, 16, no one puts a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. And then in verse 17, it says, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, those skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved, end quote. All right, we talked about largely what the Christian um, interpretation of these verses is in my uh, study. So go back and listen to previous um, episodes if you're not sure where we're going with that. Let's jump now into my study, which is available on my website at taytaytor.com. It's a a study that I put together, I don't know, five years ago or so. And um, we're reading down through the summary section. So let's jump right in where we left off last week. Here's what I have to say in my study. So we we just got through studying, um, I'm sorry, we just got through commenting about the summary about um, Pastor John Piper's perspective on this passage. Let's pick up my commentary here. I say, next we examined a short online article from gotquestions.org, a Christian website that presents a resource of various inquiries and answers from an historic Christian worldview. And as I pause, Uh, Just like I have uh, stated with um, Pastor Piper and with Pastor John MacArthur and all the other resources that I'm utilizing in this particular study, I actually chose the resources that I did because I like them, I respect them, and they actually have a lot of good material to bring to discussion and to add to my um, uh, library of, of information as a Christian, as a believer, as a Messianic Jew. So what I'm trying to say is I'm not just throwing them out carte blanche. I'm not throwing any of them under the bus or anything like that. Got Questions is a is a is one is one of my favorite bookmarks. Um, they've got a just a um, an encyclopedia of answers when it comes to different topics. Uh, some of them deep and profound. Some of them just kind of light and um, say trivial, but all of them helpful. So let's keep reading uh, my uh, commentary here. As with Pastor Piper, I say this site also apparently holds an interpretation of Matthew 9, 14 through 17 that leaves Yeshua essentially denouncing his ancestral religion of Judaism in order to usher in the age of a new religion that will come to be known as Christianity. And so, if you're familiar at all in any way, even in a light way, with replacement theology, you can even hear it in the name or some forms of dispensationalism carry what I'm about to describe. Uh, replacement theology itself has, a, has another additional name known as supersessionism, but either way you, you um, slice it and dice it, it kind of all adds up to the same um, net effect, which is we as the church, we as Gentile Christians, are no longer under the old system of things. And the old system of things is usually articulated along the lines of the old covenant 
the law of Moses, the Jewish people, Israel, um, things like that. So it's very common and popular in Christian circles and has been for, what, 1900, almost 2000 years to believe and teach this narrative, there's my favorite N-word uh, uh, these days, narrative, that um, Christians, as Gentile Christians particularly, are, are not really bound by law. Um, they're not bound by the Torah of Moses and all of those um, uh, legalistic uh, observances or um, rest you know, restrictions, religious, um, uh, what, what did they say, um, um, requirements, etc., etc., um, and it's because in Messiah, a new covenant has been brought into the picture, and this new covenant entails a new testament, and a new testament means a new people and a new standard to live by, etc. So we're not we're no longer under the law; we're under grace. Um, we're free from the law. Um, you know, it was nailed to the cross. Certain verses kind of pop into my mind that Paul penned. When this discussion about the the role of Torah in the life of a, of your average Christian comes up, so that's the perspective that we're challenging in this study. As you know, I disagree with the general sentiments of replacement theology um, and supersessionism, and even some uh, of the uh, aspects of dispensationalism. But but every system have its has its merits, has its pros as well as as well as its cons, its ugly cons. But let's keep looking at this. Um, I say in my uh, uh, summary section here. Speaking about GodQuestions.org, their comments seem to focus on the premise that one should not mix Old Testament rituals with New Testament realities that are found only in Christ. And that's why I use the phrase incompatible in my um, paper, in my essay here. The commentary is trying to ascertain whether or not Messianic Judaism is a viable set. For instance, once you are have come to a faith and knowledge of you, Jesus, if you were a Jew, if the lifestyle you led before you became a Christian was some form of Judaism, whether it be a um, rabbinic Judaism, like an Orthodox Jew, or maybe a conservative, or even a Reformed Jew with the kind of the more liberal end of the, of the spectrum, is it proper or allowable to still practice a lifestyle that, for all intents and purposes, resembles Judaism? Right, you're a born Jew. You've been raised as a Jew. It's it's the lifestyle you've led up until a certain point in your life, and then uh, someone witnesses to you, and you come to place your faith in Jesus as your Messiah. Can you still practice Judaism, or or are these lifestyles incompatible? Are the systems incompatible? Is it possible? And because of the assumption by um, many in Christianity, I have to say this in my commentary. The assumption here was that by the use of their phrase rituals, um, and I'm talking about GodQuestions.org, I took it that what they meant was, quote, a works-based religion, end quote. So if you ask your average Christian, what does Judaism believe in terms of salvation? What does Judaism believe in terms of righteousness? How do Jews believe they're made right with God, or how do Jews think they're going to get to heaven if you ask that kind of pointed question? If you ask your Christians, your average Christian, they'll probably tell you, well, I've been told, and what they mean is they're echoing something that either their pastor preached or they watched a YouTube video on or they read online somewhere in a blog or uh, something like that. They're, they'll tell you, well, I've always been taught that what the Jews have always believed for thousands of years is that if they keep the Torah, 
that, that God will save them or God will make them righteous. God will let them into heaven based on their keeping of the Torah. And then the discussion entails some something along the lines of how much Torah to keep or if they have to keep it perfectly. But usually um, the, uh, um, the parts of Torah that are often brought forth as examples are like Sabbath keeping, kosher keeping, uh, circumcision, uh, you know, keeping the festivals. Some of them, what we might call visible badges or outward identifiers of, of Jewish lifestyle. So your average Christian has been taught that uh, God expected Israel to keep the law in order to bring them into a right relationship that equated with salvation. And then by contrast, Jesus came and uprooted that whole system only to explain to Christians now the way you become righteous by God, the way you're brought into salvation relationship with God is through me. Place your faith in me, and by grace, you're brought into the family of God. And so no longer do you have to concern yourself with all of those rituals and things like that. You just need to focus on uh, relying on the Holy Spirit to uh, tell you what to do. Um, your lifestyle is markedly different than what those religious Jews are going to be doing. And so your average Christian doesn't know what to do with Jews who become Christians, other than to tell them, well, you need to start living your life as a Christian now. So your Jewish lifestyle, all those Jewish things you used to do, those those Moses uh, law things you used to do, all of that has been done away with. And they start pointing them to the passages in Paul that give them that impression that the law has been set aside, it's been laid laid uh, to the side, it's been relaxed. Uh, I, I humorously said uh, Christians will use the F word, the law has been fulfilled, and it's not the F word you're thinking, right, when I say F word, it, that the law has been fulfilled by Jesus and so we no longer have to do it anymore. It's not a requirement that we need to concern ourselves with. We're no longer under the law. We're under grace, like Paul says in Romans 6, right? Um, and it, no one can keep the law and be saved. You can't be saved by keeping the law. So stop trying to do all those um, legalistic things. So this is what Christians have been taught and what Christians commonly believe that Jews would believe themselves, right? So that's what I mean by that. And so I go and say in my commentary, what we found in our critique of this view, so we're talking about GodQuestions.org, is that, however, is that it is not necessary to jettison the whole quote-unquote religious package, end quote, known as Judaism to include its Torah-based rituals in order to acquire genuine faith in Jesus, and that to enforce this view would essentially be like asking a religious Jew to stop being, quote, religiously Jewish, end quote, in order to become, quote, religiously Christian, end quote. So, um, are you understanding kind of the um, uh, the perspective I'm, I'm uh, uh, inserting here into my commentary? If the religious Jew has led a life that included a healthy amount of Torah observance and focus on, on keeping the commandments of God, etc. So maybe we're kind of describing um, a typical religious Jew, like an Orthodox Jew or something like that. If that's the situation, which is actually a minority view in America and in many places of the world, Orthodox Judaism isn't the largest um, uh, slice of um, representations when it comes to Judaism, you'll find that more and more Jews are simply secular. They're just like your average Joe on the street. They don't really have any vested interest in keeping the law of Moses, per se. You know, they go to synagogue twice a year on Passover and on Yom Kippur, just like the your average um, uh, watered-down Christian goes to uh, church twice a year on Christmas and Easter, etc. So you have your average um, 
um, Joe Schmo uh, Jew, who is, is kind of in that same um, boat. He's not that really devoted to God, that really interested in, in uh, keeping the commandments. He's just a token Jew because he's been um, raised that way. His parents are Jewish. You know, he was maybe bar mitzvahed. And then, um, you know, he lived his life on his own uh, after that. He pursued his own interests. And so if you ask him, um, would you give up your Judaism in order to embrace Jesus? If he came to a salvation experience, he probably wouldn't have a hard time leaving all that Jewish stuff behind because he, he hasn't really embraced it as a lifestyle anyway. However, in my experience, if you had this same conversation with a religious Jew, an Orthodox Jew, and all of their um, preferences for keeping law and their scrupulous study of Torah, et cetera, et cetera, and 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 they're holding on to all of the oral traditions and you know things like that. If if you try to witness to them and bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus, there's probably going to be a lot more opposition to telling them that they need to leave their Jewish lifestyle behind once they become a Christian, because Judaism and Christianity are incompatible with one another as as world systems. And in all truthfulness, and I'll jump back in my commentary, if the kind of stereotypical version of Judaism that I described by Christianity is true. If it is true that Judaism is trying to work their way into heaven by the keeping of their commandments, by their merit theology, by keeping the law of Moses perfectly, etc., etc., if that's true, if that is an accurate perspective and a description of Judaism, both in Paul's day as well as today, if, it's, if that's true, then Judaism and Christianity are incompatible with one another. My statement is accurate there, right? If Judaism is, in fact, a works-based system, then Christianity as we know it in its generic evangelical form, Protestant evangelical form, is, in fact, incompatible with merit theology and works righteousness. So, all right, let's keep reading my commentary. Let me see how much time I got here. Oh, I'm doing great. All right, let's read some more. Um... In my commentary, new paragraph, I say, we then observed a lengthy transcript of a sermon by Pastor John MacArthur. He's one of my favorites. I was I uh, had a job as a Christian uh, radio DJ uh, back in the mid-80s and mid-90s, so for almost, almost 10 years. It was a good, healthy six, seven years as a radio DJ at a Christian radio station, FM radio station. And during that time, along with playing... Uh, contemporary and uh, traditional Christian music, we also played uh, sermons from pastors, well-known pastors, you know, John MacArthur, uh, um, uh, Josh McDowell, Focus on the Family, um, uh, you know, um, uh, just those are two that just popped in my head off the top of my head. But um, John MacArthur was one of, my, one of the champions, one of the giants that when I mean, I, just, I was very, I couldn't wait to listen to him when I was uh, doing my radio show because you know, I had to play the uh, the tapes for the other people to listen to for the to, to be broadcast on the air. And I was just ready to listen to his sermons every week because he's so profound. He's very deep. Uh, he's very knowledgeable. He's very articulate. Um, uh, he's got some humor. And uh, he just captivated me uh, with, with his, uh, his sermons just over and over again. And to this day, I still appreciate his resources. So we looked at his uh, um, commentary on this passage. And here's what I say. Uh, John MacArthur on the passage passage of Matthew 9, 14-17, and what we found is that Pastor MacArthur is to be quite bold in his indictment of Judaism as a religion in need of replacement. And this is kind of unfortunate for me as a Messianic Jew, because I have so much respect for this particular pastor. 
And so I have, I have this little bit of um, cognitive dissonance going on whenever I listen to Pastor MacArthur. On the one hand, when I say cognitive dissonance, it's like it's kind of like you, you like, but you don't like. It's a love-hate relationship when I say cognitive dissonance. Um, it's a psychology term I learned when I was in school. Pastor MacArthur is very vocal when he talks about the uselessness of world religions. He He's actually almost of the impression that um, man's religions is one of the um, most uh, damaging things that exist in the world today, right? You know, it's even like more damaging like, like than some forms of of um, heresy and forms of, of, uh, of say, um, uh, atheism and things like that. He talks about how religion is just one of the one of the chief forms of poison that exists in the world today the poison human uh, man's mind and so along with that um very strong dislike for uh, uh false religions uh, other than christianity he throws judaism in that just right right alongside like hinduism and buddhism and 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 um uh, atheism and and uh you know all the other isms that are are poisonous to your average christian judaism is just one one in there he doesn't give he does at least he doesn't appear to give judaism the benefit of the, of the fact that judaism spouses belief in the same god that christians do judaism shares the same uh, half of the same bible that christians do judaism is the cradle that christianity was birthed out of etc cetera, etc cetera. he doesn't seem to make those particular statements very vocal if he does believe them i've not heard them very often so in my um comment here my summary section i say speaking of uh pastor macarthur arguably we found that the gist of macarthur's comments was really aimed i should say i suppose it says comments just say were uh, were aimed um at any and all dead religions i just mentioned this to include many modern religions that we know of today so he really just throws all dead religions again anything other than christianity he really just throws them out to to uh he rings them out to dry him and he he lays the axe right at their roots and i go on to say uh given these facts about uh, pastor macarthur indeed only yeshua's words carry the way the truth and the life i say like any religion sans christ right sans meaning minus any religion minus christ judaism without yeshua is hopelessly bankrupt a point pastor macarthur aptly drove home time and time again so um that's why i said there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance on the one hand as a religious jew myself as a messianic jew i appreciate the beauty of what judaism brings to the table of discussion even the non-messianic forms of judaism there's some there's some value in what they have to say, especially if it's rooted in the Bible. There's some insights that I can gain from reading the rabbinic materials and interacting with them. And so um, I don't swallow all of it. I certainly don't endorse all of what rabbinic Judaism has to offer, but I don't throw it out all, all out altogether. But Pastor MacArthur doesn't seem to have the same perspective as myself. Um, he seems to think that uh, it's hopelessly bankrupt. I'm using words that I think I seem to remember him using as well. Hopelessly bankrupt, meaning it is incompatible. In fact, I, I believe thinking back now five to seven years ago when I first began to um, uh, put together the notes that became this particular uh, essay or study that, you're, that we're reading right now, and then I finally uh, penned it, you know, I, I believe it might have been one of Pastor uh, MacArthur's sermons that actually kind of prompted me in the first place to begin to say, 
wow, I really don't like the way he's describing Judaism as this dead religion. I wish he would at least give Judaism a little bit of credit, a little bit of, um, uh, um, how do we say, a uh, uh, little bit of um, uh, understanding of, of that they are the ones that are still the kind of the form some of the foundations of Christianity, right? Everyone out there listening to my my voice right now, my YouTube video or my uh, iTunes podcast, you guys all understand that Christianity is not founded on, say, Islam or Buddhism or some Eastern religion or a Gnosticism or something like that. Christianity is actually rooted in, in biblical Judaism. It's founded on biblical Judaism. It's, And I'm describing Christianity as the um, part of religion that uh, was birthed in the first century, even though um, elements of Christianity really run throughout all of the Bible. If you think about belief in in one God, uh, relevancy of the Scriptures, which are things that are that are central to Christian beliefs and faith. But uh, I think it was Pastor Mark MacArthur that uh, began uh, helping me to see that wow, uh, not everyone believes what I believe about uh, the relevancy of Judaism. I go on to say my commentary. Um, However, the overall thrust of John MacArthur's sermon proved to mirror the central tenets of replacement theology too closely, it's my opinion, and thus eventually we had to reject his interpretation of Matthew 9, 14 through 17 altogether, I say, in search of a more historically accurate and scripturally sound position, which again was such a kind of a letdown for me since I have all this respect for most of the other materials that John MacArthur offers. And so for that reason, uh, I'll say this again. I've said it over and over again. I don't reject John MacArthur. I consider him a, a brother. I consider him a, um, a very valuable resource. Um, I will continue to listen to his sermons and um, utilize his materials, and I'll endorse him openly. I don't have a problem with that. Um, I consider him, a, 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 like I said, a, um, a valuable uh, a champion of faith and as such, I can uh, feel comfortable endorsing his his uh, materials, even if I don't fully in- agree with his views on, say, Judaism. All right, let me see how much time. Um, let me see how long this paragraph is. All right, I think I can. Uh, I think I can do this one as well. Uh, let's keep reading. I say in my commentary. Finally. From the prevailing views of the Christian camp in my study, we examined the comments of Pastor David Guzik. This is Judaism v. Christianity. Are Judaism and Christianity compatible one with none another? And we're reviewing the summary of the commentary that's available on my website at teitzaytorah.com. My name is Arabin Lyman Hanavi, so I'm glad you've joined along with us. In my commentary here, I say again, we stressed the notion that Pastor Guzik is a fine Bible expositor with a solid foundation in the biblical Jesus and a firm grasp of the central truths of the genuine gospel. So, along with the other pastors, Pastor Piper, Pastor MacArthur, and along with GotQuestions.org, Pastor David Guzik is going to represent um, kind of the general mainstream Christian perspective on this passage, which is a representation of the historic Christian position, but in my experience, it's not a very good representation of the um, biblical perspective. And remember, when we look at Matthew 9, let me hit this tab for you a uh, second. You look at this passage, when we look at the parables that are following Jesus' initial answer about why he and his disciples aren't 
um, fasting, his two parables that are provided are not followed in this passage with any explanation, like Jesus has done in other places in the Gospels. You ask him a question, he gives a parable, and then his disciples are left scratching their heads, and they don't understand it either. He pulls them off to the side, and he gives them the interpretation. And we have it recorded for us. It's not always true, but many times it is. And so um, it's helpful when we have the master himself explaining what he means by his parables. By the way, they're not called parables here in Mark and in, in Matthew or in Mark, but they are called parables in Luke. And so it's Christianity who has supplied the allegory that we're uh, dealing with. So back to my uh, commentary. I say, nevertheless, Pastor Guzik presented an interpretation of Matthew 9, 14 through 17 that essentially agreed with the previously examined Christian positions in that Here it is. Jesus did not come to repair Judaism, but to replace it with the new covenant. In essence, Judaism was irreparable. It was was bad to the core. It needed to be thrown out. It needed to be replaced. And that's assuming the position that Judaism is a merit theology system, a works righteousness. Okay, That's the assumption made by all three of these resources that I've encountered, the fourth of them now being uh, Pastor David Guzik. They all kind of assume that Judaism in the first century held to a, um, a legalism uh, of which the flavor was equal to what we would today uh, call just works righteousness. You know, do the commandments, keep them perfectly, and God will save you. That's about it. All right, let's continue. Indeed, I say in my commentary, Pastor David Guzik feels that Jesus came to introduce something new, not to patch up something old, and thus there would be no need for a Jew to hold on to the cultural vestiges of Judaism once he embraced the new covenant. This is, again, the challenge. Are, uh, is messing up Judaism an empty set? Is it allowable for a Jew to continue practicing his Judaism once he comes to a faith in Jesus? And so, um, let me see. I want to stop there. I think that's a good place to stop. I'm not going to read the rest. Uh, um, we'll stop in the mid in mid uh, uh, evaluation of of the summary of Pastor David Guzik. You can go back to my website and read the rest if you want. But we'll stop here tonight and pick this up again next week. Um, just keep in mind that. When I'm having these discussions about this particular topic, about replacement theology and things like that, I'm not trying to support an idea, and I'm winding down with my these comments, I'm not trying to support an idea that we bring back Judaism in all of its glory because Christianity is deficient. I'm not trying to pit these two religions against one another so that we can have them duke it out and see which one is, is the champion, and I'm placing all my bets on Judaism. That's not what's going on either. I fully realize that Judaism has its deficiencies, chiefly that which is that they reject Jesus um, wholesale, right? For the most part, religious Jews the world over, uh, um, rabbinic Judaism, has taken a stand against Jesus as Messiah. So I I recognize that that is their primary deficiency as a religion, as a people group. And for that reason, I'm ready to um, hold them accountable for that rejection, right? When I say hold them accountable, obviously God is the one who judges the hearts of men. What I'm saying is I'm ready to defend my position as a Christian, as as a Messianic Jew, and tell them that, hey, the very same Bible that teaches you to be a good Jew, right, your Tanakh, your Old Testament, is the same Bible that teaches me who the real Messiah is, 
Jesus is his name. You want to find him. You don't have to look in the pages of the New Testament. It would be convenient if you did. But you can find Jesus in the Old Testament as well. Right? He's there. God placed his identity there for you to find. You just need to search. And so, yes, that's what I mean by holding them accountable. So I'm not ready to just endorse everything that Judaism believes and teaches. But what I find discomforting, and I'm closing with this, is the idea uh, put forth by these resources that I represented in my commentary that Judaism as a lifestyle, right, the Torah-based lifestyle, is also incompatible with the relig- with the Christian-based lifestyle. And that's where I'm going to take a lot of umbrage. I'm going to bring up a lot of um, challenges to the common Christian idea that the law has been done away with, that we no longer have to have any um, uh, commitment to the law of Moses. We no longer need to circum- practice circumcision or festival keeping or Sabbath keeping or kosher keeping and tzitzit wearing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Christianity has said that these things are done away with. I say, no, I disagree. So that'll do it now for my study on Judaism v. Christianity. We'll pick this up again next week, right in the middle here um, of this paragraph where we're assessing the summary on uh, Pastor David Guzik. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi, and I am a Torah teacher at a real-life congregation in Colorado, the Harvest Congregation, otherwise known as Keilat Tunuah, the Harvest. You can join us online at www.graftedin.com, or uh, you can visit us in person week after week and join us for our Sabbath services. But if you're still uncomfortable getting out, be sure to um, go to our website at graftedin.com and uh, see the link on my screen right now. Um, the uh, the image on my screen right now it points to the YouTube videos that are uploaded to YouTube in case you'd like to just simply watch your uh, Messianic service online. Uh, please feel free to do so that way. Speaking of online resources, why not find me online at www.tetzetorah.com. It's my own personal Torah teaching website that's spelled T-E-T-Z-E. T-O-R-A-H dot com, TateSayTorah.com, where I park most of my uh, written commentaries. Um, you can see the cluster there right now on the homepage. That represents basically the core of um, most of my written commentaries. It's not the exhaustive list there. If you click each uh, section, you'll find that there's other um, um commentaries that are available but feel free to browse around bookmark the page i try to update uh things as often as i can um but if not be sure to visit my youtube channel that's right i've got a youtube channel you can find me on youtube's um platform at youtube.com forward slash c for the word channel forward slash tate torah ministries all one word spelled out there and as you can see from my uh, image there i update my channel daily typically i'm uploading videos once a day twice a day something like that so i'm quite busy so be sure to do take one of the actions that you see dancing on your screen right now to subscribe hit the um, bell for notifications um, share the content with your friends and family members leave comments um, and things like that that way you are always be in the loop whenever uh, something new is happening on my YouTube channel. These live internet studies are brought to you week after week. And if you'd like to join us week after week, which again, you're certainly invited to, you're going to need to get access to Skype somehow. And the blue Skype button that you can see on my screen right now, which is available on my 
um, Tate Tate's a tour website. If you were to click that anytime during the live studies, it'll open up Skype right in your browser, especially if you're using either a desktop or a laptop computer. But again, the important details, we meet Saturday afternoons from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. And that's the central daylight time. It's taught via Skype. And um, there's no... Um, uh, other software really needed unless you're um, using maybe a smart device or a smartphone then you might need some other software but if not be sure to while you're on my website scroll all the way to the very very bottom and to that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing and prayerfully consider partnering with me to help me continue to bring these Torah teachings to you free of charge and the way you can do that is you can give to my ministry and the little yellow donate button there is where you can um, send your uh, donations in I appreciate your generosity and your prayers and um, as I always say be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others Let's turn now to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. My name is Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. This is a 30-minute um, study. This is part two or segment two of my hour-long study. Hope you were actually able to listen to the first 30-minute segment on Judea. Uh, Judaism versus Christianity or Judaism and, and Christianity compatible with one another. If you didn't, if you're just now watching this part one of five parts of my YouTube video, um, then uh, I encourage you to go to my YouTube channel and um, catch the uh, ongoing study of uh, Judaism v. Christianity. It's a very, um, very lively study there. But let's look at our study on the issues of Trinity. We've now come to a point in my study where we're in paper three and we're winding things down. We're on the um, topic of who or what is the Holy Spirit, right? Segment seven of this paper three, who, what is the Holy Spirit? And we've been looking at revisiting passages uh, that were brought up in paper two. There's a chart that I supplied by Carm that I've not, I'm not, didn't really go through all the verses. Instead, I encouraged you to go back and read the verses and study them on your own and look at the different headings and titles and attributes and names that are assigned to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in this effort to show how that Trinity is really the only logical conclusion that one would come to if they read the Bible as a whole and give it its full weight and give it its, its proper voice. We're ready now to um, draw some kind of conclusionary summary type statements to this section on the Holy Spirit by looking at one of my all-time favorites, which of course is Tim Haig. Um, let's look at his notes here. At the top of my screen, I say, um, Tim Haig's seminary-level theolo theology proper commentary adds a fitting conclusion to this section of my paper. And I'm drawing these notes from a um, paper that's available, a book, I believe, a teaching that's available on his website at torresource.com. I'll flash a little link on the screen here, picture of Tim Haig and uh, the, the, his web address. And um, he's got a seminary-level study. They've got like a Bible school that they, that they run uh, through the summer. They're, in fact, they're going through it right now in the summer and the fall or something like that. Summer classes, spring classes, fall classes, something like that. And um, it's I say it is seminary level because um, it's a paid class. I'm just like a little mini endorsement for you, Tim. Uh, so um, I hope I can get some little kickbacks from you. No, just just teasing. Anyway, seriously, um, this uh, these resources aren't available for free. Uh, you have to pay to get them is the point I'm trying to make. All right, so here's what Tim has to say. Oops, try that again. Here's uh, Tim's thoughts. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, the fact is obvious that in the Tanakh, as well as in the Apostolic Scriptures, the Spirit is viewed and spoken of with the same language as God. 
Let me pause and interject. That's the very reason why we went through the table or why I listed the table in my commentary where you have a heading along the top of the columns. There's three columns. There's really four, but the three heading columns are Father, Son, and Spirit, and the um, titles running down the, on the left-hand edge or the, the words uh, running down the left-hand side are um, verses, I'm sorry, are uh, labels and descriptions some of them are qualities uh, or personality traits, et cetera, et cetera. Some of them are historical occurrences or uh, in salvation history or creative history, et cetera, that describe actions that God has done. Some of them are signature, like creation uh, or forgiveness of sins and things like that. And they are meant to draw to our attention the fact that if we read the Bible from start to finish and not and don't cherry pick or don't uh, um, only focus on the verses that agree with our theology and, and and toss the rest, right? That's a bad way to read your Bible. But if you read the Bible and accept all of it, even if you can't fully understand how all of it fits together, you at least accept all of it All of it as authoritative and you accept all of it in its entirety. So what I'm, what I'm describing is what Dr. James White calls uh, sola scriptura and toto scriptura. He didn't invent those terms. They are terms that are um, uh, go all the way back to the church fathers because they're obviously Latin Sola Scriptura is a Latin phrase that refers to all of Scripture uh, alone as the authoritative body of uh, literature that exists in the life of a Christian. This doesn't mean you can't have other resources in your life, other pastors, um, you know, Bible commentaries, etc., etc. You certainly should, but at the end of the day, they have to yield to what the Bible says. So if you read something in your Bible commentary that says one thing, you read something in the Bible that says something different, you're going to want to stick with the Bible if you, even if you can't fully understand what the Bible says. The Bible is the authority. That's sola scriptura, the Bible alone. And then when we say tota scriptura, another Latin phrase that Dr. White is fond of um, uh, talking about, he's referring to um, all of scripture, meaning don't cherry pick. So what Tim Haig is bringing up is the same thing that the chart tried to demonstrate, is that let the Bible speak for itself when you're determining or what God is, the nature of God, the discussion that we're having about Trinity and things like that. So, um, Tim continues, Furthermore, that which is ascribed to the Almighty, which is creation, sovereignty, omnipresence, righteousness, holiness, etc., is equally ascribed to His Spirit. So we find qualities of God that are um, listed in the Bible, when we're dealing with God the Father, or just God generally, even without the word Father, uh, we'd read, when we read about God or Yahweh in the Old Testament, the Tanakh, by the time we get to the New Testament, most of that language about God and Yahweh has switched over to God the Father in respect with um, God the Son, or Jesus the Son, the Son of Man, um, Jesus Christ himself, who takes on the title Lord which is curiously the same Greek title that was applied to Yahweh in the Old Testament of the Tanakh. In fact, kudios, the Greek word for Lord, is actually the, in, the um, Greek counterpart to YHV, Tetragrammaton name, showing up in the Tanakh, if you were to read it in the Greek um, Septuagint. So, Tim Higgs is just reminding us that um, the Spirit is very God because he is given some of the signature actions that God alone is said to do, such as creation, right? When, when you're talking about and having discussions about God's identity and the identity of Jesus and the identity of the Holy Spirit, some of the things that are helpful is to 
picture in your mind a chart, if as it were, and a line that's drawn vertically from the top to the bottom of your chart and dividing the chart in half. And on one half of the chart, you want to place God. Just write G-O-D in big letters. And on the other uh, half of the chart, you want to write everything else in big letters. And then underneath the word God, maybe I'll, maybe I'll create a graphic or show you something similar to that on the screen in post-production. Under the word God, you want to put the word Creator. And under the word everything else, you want to put the word creation, right, in written brackets or parentheses. And what you're doing for yourself is you're giving the biblical representation of God's identity as the creator on one side of everything else of the creation. And so when you're trying to ascertain where does Jesus, where does the Holy Spirit fit on this chart, which side of the line do they belong on, you're going to want to research Look for verses, look for verbiage, look for terminology, look for signature actions, attributes, etc. That will allow you to come to the conclusion that Jesus belongs on the side where God is, and so does the Holy Spirit. And that's the way it works. And this helps you to come to the conclusion that that um, Jesus is very God, and so is the Holy Spirit. They they share the same homoousius, the same essence, the same essential nature, which is divinity, which is only ascribed to God. All right, so that's what Tim Hague's trying to say. He continues. Keep doing that. Sorry about that. Uh, Tim gives these um, um, representative uh, uh, bullet points. Bullet point number one. Isaiah 6.9, revelation to the prophet ascribed to Adonai, compare from Acts 28.25, where it is ascribed to the Holy Spirit. What Tim is doing is he's kind of uh, mimicking what I did the chart. He's showing you just a sampling of an attribute or an action or a signature quality of God that is shared by one or both of the other persons of the Trinity so that we can come to the conclusion that we're dealing with one and the same being, but nevertheless three separate persons. Uh, point number two, Jeremiah 31, 31 and following is said by Tim uh, to be the words of which Adonai spoke, but in Hebrew 10, 15, the words are actually attributed to the Spirit. Again, he's showing you how that when you take the Bible and you allow passages in one part of the Bible to give you this representation of one of the persons of God, hold that in your hand, and at the same time, take another passage out of the Bible and the other hand, and notice how it's ascribing or describing actions of being done by another person of the Trinity, or maybe even more, or another just person of the Bible. Then what you do is when you put these two passages together and you overlap them and overlay them, you then are able to see that, aha, there's one being at work, and yet there are multiple persons at work doing uh, doing the actions or performing uh, the the um, uh, you know descriptions or something like that. And then um, point number three that Tim uh, brings up, and then again again this is just a very small representation of what Carm did in the chart that we looked at in paper two and in paper three. Uh, if we look, and this is one of my favorite ones, creation is attributed to the Spirit per Job 33.4, but is equally attributed to Elohim in Genesis 1.1, as well as to the Messiah in Isaiah 48.12 and following, and John 1.3 and Colossians 1.16 and following. 
And these are very well-known passages that Trinitarians utilize over and over again when they're having dialogues with non-Trinitarians or anti-Trinitarians, uh, folks who don't ascribe to the idea that God is three persons. Um, it's helpful for them to show how that maintaining that God is creator alone is helpful, but it's going to work against you when you reject the fact that the Bible also ascribes creation attributes to the, uh, the Son and to the Holy Spirit. It, that's like that's why I said the logical conclusion that one comes to when they read the Bible uh, in its entirety and allow it to have its own authority, right? Borrowing those two, total, uh, sola scriptura and total scriptura uh, 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 um, examples, the, the proper conclusion that one comes to is Trinity. That's the proper conclusion. This is actually con contra to what non-Trinitarians actually express. They'll say, I used to believe in Trinity, but it's incompatible with what I read in the Bible, or it's inconsistent with what I figure the Bible should be saying about God or something like that. So they've been kind of tricked into believing that one passage is truth and the other passage needs to be discarded or it's been tampered with or it's questionable for some reason or another or the um you know because of the um say differences in translation or differences in manuscripts then the verse is rendered unusable right as if it needs to be thrown out in the discussion and so um they begin to exegete their bible in this illogical fashion where they purposely look for one verse that agrees with their theology and without knowing it, they're cherry-picking. Even if they don't know they're doing it, they're leaving out other passages. But Tim's demonstrating that, no, that's a very bad way to read your Bible. What you want to do is, if you find a passage that says one truth, you find another passage that says another truth, even though you can't reconcile in your mind how these two truths fit together, they seem to kind of tug um, at um, in opposite, opposite directions almost. Nevertheless, if you believe that the Bible is authoritative in its, as, a, as a whole, then you're going to hold, hold both of those truths in tension, right? In tension. You're going to say, this is true, and yet this is true, and even though I can't reconcile the two, I can't fully understand it myself, the deficiency is on my end. The deficiency is not on the Bible. There's no need to rip parts of that out of the Bible away that I, don't disagree, uh, that I disagree with or don't understand. There's no need to do that. Instead, question your own interpretation. Question your own perspective and just throw your hands up and say, Lord, explain it to me. I don't understand how these two fit together. This is what we described as the Hebrew Hebraic perspective of the Bible. Allow for tension, allow for paradoxes to exist. Tim goes on to say in my uh, quote from here in my paper, there's no doubt that the scriptures, when taken as a whole, right, there's that um, um, Toto scripture, when taken as a whole, they speak of the spirit as though he is a person and attribute to him works and characteristics ascribed to Adonai in other places. And let me just pause there and interject. This is one of the ways in which we believe and come to believe that the Holy Spirit is not merely an impersonal force like the Jehovah's Witnesses describe, or like many biblical Unitarians have come to describe as well. Um, other biblical Unitarians have come to believe that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force, but the word Holy Spirit is merely another way of describing God himself, who is pure spirit. So I heard one popular biblical Unitarian I'll flash his picture on the screen in post-production. I can't remember his name because I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, Shane, Shane it, Shane height, something like that. John, I think his first name is. Um, he is very fond of saying 
that are teaching that God is holy and God is spirit. So it's logical to call him Holy Spirit in another part of the Bible, right? <laughs> he just uses like the what I believe is kind of the shortest route to explaining Holy Spirit by saying, since God is holy and since God is spirit, it's logical to call God Holy Spirit. And so it's just another way description of God. We don't have to bring any third person of the Trinity into the discussion is what this gentleman says. But again, I disagree. Um, what Tim Hague's doing right now is simply highlighting the idea that uh, he's kind of countering, he's he's um, contradicting the Jehovah's Witness perspective that the Holy Spirit's an impersonal force like electricity or static or, or something like that. Um, Tim continues, um, it's also of interest um, that in the Greek scriptures, the Greek word pneuma, or you can say pneuma, some people don't pronounce the P, uh, the Greek word pneuma, I was taught when I learned my Greek, I, I say the P. So pneuma, Greek says, uh, Tim says, though usually neuter when speaking of the Spirit of God is regularly referred to by masculine pronouns. And to give some examples, John 16, 13, and 14. And so briefly, what Tim is doing is getting a little bit of technicality for us. And so what we're going to find is uh, Jehovah's Witness, ver their version of the trans, their translation of the Bible, their version called the New World Translation is fond of taking the Greek word pneuma, and whenever it has a pronoun near that word spirit, a personal pronoun or demonstrative pronoun, it will opt for the neuter representation in English. So rather than saying he, it will say it or that one, right? Personal pronoun versus demonstrative, things like that. And so what they're trying to do is, and they'll put little margins in their footnote of their Bible and say, See, we're true to the Greek. We're accurate in our translation. The Holy Spirit, the word spirit is a neuter um, uh, grammar word, right? Grammatically speaking, it's a neuter term. Therefore, rather than um, being biased in our translation by, by assigning a masculine pronoun, we feel that's unfair. We should be true. And uh, you can hear the sarcasm in my voice, right? Um, we should be honest. You know? I'm sorry. We should be honest in our, our translation and, and show you exactly what the Greek says. The reason I'm laughing, by the way, is because their translation is well known to have been um, um, shoddy in its translation and, it, and, and, and actually dishonest in its representation of, of um, certain interpretations where they actually add words that are, are really, um, uh, really, really bad. Uh, they really shouldn't be doing what they're doing. They shouldn't be Bible translators is my point. But Tim's trying to bring it to our point, to our uh, attention, the um, reality that, um, yes, it is true. The Greek word pneuma, which is how we translate spirit, is actually neuter. And this is interesting when you compare it to, say, Hebrew and Latin, which are also languages that carry gender in their nouns. English doesn't do this, right? You take the word spirit in English, there's no gender assigned to the, the words themselves, to the terms. But there are other languages besides Hebrew and Latin and Greek um, that carry gender in their terms. Uh, I think uh, many um, European languages do so, like some um, French, I believe, or and or Spanish, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So, so here's the, a, a kind of interesting uh, fact to um, uh, consider. The word spirit in Greek, the gender of the word is neuter, right? It's neither feminine nor masculine in its gender, 
all right, of the, of the, of the word. It's not to suggest that the spirit is gendered. It's simply the word itself has gender. But when we compare it to Latin, the word spirit, um, spiritus, I believe it is, uh, is, is spirito. I'll have to look this up. I'm just pulling this off the top of my head. But I'll, uh, in post, I'll show you what the actual word is. But I think it's something similar to that. It's spirito, whatever. But Latin word is actually gendered as um, masculine. Isn't that interesting? The Latin version. But by comparison, the Hebrew word, which is uh, ruach, uh, which means the same thing, spirit or breath or wind, it's actually feminine in gender. So if you just put these three languages on the table and have a discussion between three of them, Hebrew, Latin, Greek, you're going to find that the gender is going to change depending on which uh, language you're looking at. But that's neither here nor there. What is more important is the um, context so, um, uh, sometimes it's necessary to include uh, an it in your personal pronoun or your demonstrative pronoun, but other times when we're talking about um, other descriptions that are in the Bible, such as the Holy Spirit's given the description of the, uh, the paraclete, the comforter, which is rooted in the Greek word parakletos, that word is masculine, if, I'm, if I remember off the top of my head. And therefore, since Jesus says that this parakletos is going to be sent by the Father and by myself, speaking of in, in Yeshua's own voice, then it's proper to say that he is going to be sent. Plus, a point I might also bring up to Jehovah's Witnesses, since they believe that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal it, it's common for them to translate the Holy Spirit's pro personal pronouns, the Spirit's pronouns, using um, it and uh, this and that one and things like that, rather than saying he. But Unitarian Christians, biblical Unitarians, at least those who are of the flavor that believe that the Holy Spirit is actually just another name for God, since it is a well-known fact that God represents himself as in the masculine personal pronoun as a he, right? He's and, and as the father, or it's also a a male um, uh, um, a picture or image. Right, it uses masculine anthropomorphic terminology, even though God's pure spirit, he doesn't have any um, true gender in that sense, right? He doesn't have body parts that would identify him as a male, is what I'm trying to say. But so, he, since he's pure spirit, if in fact the Holy Spirit is just another way of describing God, like the biblical Unitarians say, contra Jehovah's Witnesses' perspective that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force. If it, if the Unitarian if the biblical Unitarian perspective is accurate, then their Bible should reflect those personal and demonstrative pronouns as you ready for it, masculine. Why? Because context demands that the Spirit is talking about God, the Father, who Himself is a He. All right. Tim continues. Speaking about the personal pronouns and things like that, masculine pronouns. This fact, coupled with the fact that. He, the Spirit, leads, teaches, sanctifies, and comforts the individual believer, as well as the community of the faithful. These truths would indicate his individual personality. And again, this is something that the Jehovah's Witnesses seem to either finesse, bypass, ignore, or outright don't understand. That an impersonal force can't um, um, display personal actions. Uh, especially ones that indicate um, personal will, decision-making process, uh, feelings, um, intelligent thought and speech, etc., etc. Um, last time I checked, um, impersonal objects or forces 
of nature, you know, water, electricity, wind, etc. They don't have the ability to um, express themselves the way that the Holy Spirit is described in the Bible. So I'm not really sure why they even um, champion that illogical perspective. If I were um, forced to choose between the biblical Unitarian perspective that the Holy Spirit is simply another name for God himself, right, another name for God the Father, versus the Jehovah's Witness perspective that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force. By the way, the Je- I'm picking on the Je- Jehovah's Witnesses, but they're not the only uh, religious group out there that believe that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force. I think there are some other Christian groups that believe that as well. Um, don't quote me on this, but I think I think maybe some um, some Oneness Pentecostals might hold that position. Um, some uh, you know, Church of God individuals. I thought I need to look it up again. I'm drawing a blank. But if I were forced between these two positions, which by the way I reject both of them to 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 for for the most part. Um, but if I was forced to choose one of them, and I wasn't given the uh, the third option of choosing the Trinitarian position that I already hold to, then I would actually, using the biblical uh, context and the biblical data that's in front of me, I would actually go with the biblical Unitarian position. I think they're more um, accurate in in that uh, representation of the Spirit. Although, again, I, I at the end of the day, I reject their position that the Holy Spirit is merely another way of describing God. Sometimes it is a way of describing God. We have to look at context, but other times it's clear from the text that the Holy Spirit is this this um, agent agent of God being sent to do God's bidding, similar to the way Yeshua is sent to do God's bidding. Uh, you know, Father is sending Son to do what uh, is the Father's will, etc. So, um, in closing, uh, this section on Tim Haig here, this uh, brief look at his commentary. Uh, Tim says, speaking of the Spirit, he equips for special ministry and duty, just like uh, Bezalel in the construction of the tabernacle that we read about in the Old Testament, or Barnabas and Paul in outreach ministries, right? If he equips for and um, and he chooses people, uh, then in one sense, he's empowering them like a power from on high, like a gift, like an attribute that God can convey upon a person, like a gift that he can bestow, like the unit, biblical Unitarian position describes God to be doing with his spirit. This is true. But on the other hand, it's clear that the Holy Spirit is demonstrating his own personality by telling um, church leaders in the Bible, hey, separate from me Paul and Barnabas and send them to do you know this mission, etc. And so the Spirit speaking that express will and desire to send people to do things, which gives him that personality aspect. In other words, he's not a mere impersonal force. So he does these things, and Tim says he appoints those who should lead the congregation, right? He has his own will, and God um, sends him. I spoke last week about the the spirit um, aspirates. I I was adding an extra A there. Actually, it's just spiration. I'll put a little graphic on the screen for this as well. In closing, when we're looking at Trinity, when we're looking at the nature of God, and we've got this one being who is um, three persons— we see that in the hierarchy of God, and there is a hierarchy, right? But we have to be careful how we describe it. It's not an ontological hierarchy or a um, subordination. It's an it's a um, it's an economic one. Uh, uh, it, the and I'm fond of reminding us. I'll put a little graphic on the screen for this as well. When we're talking about Trinity, ontological Trinity refers to who God is. Economic Trinity refers to what God does. Okay, so slight difference in in um a focus there but they're both trinity i'm not saying there's two trinities i'm just saying when we're talking about um describing um 
aspects of God versus describing actions of God. So when we're looking at the Holy Spirit and we're describing um, where he fits in the in the hierarchy of the Trinity, is he equal to God? Yes. Is he consubstantial with God? Yes. Is he is he co uh, co-eternal, co-existent, co-powerful with God? Absolutely. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They all have the same equal status as God, right? There's no um, um, uh, ontological uh, hierarchy going on there. They're all equally 100% God. They all share the same nature equally across the three persons, right? There's no lacking. There's no deficiency on the part of either one of them. However, what we find that economically, when we're talking about the roles and functions that God plays, the actions that he does, especially in salvation history, God... Um, um, God, uh, uh, what's the what's the B word? God uh, birthed the Son. God um, uh, sent the Son into the world. God, uh, God, I'm drawing a blank here. I apologize. Um, uh, it's it's a word where we say that the the Son is generated from the Father. He's 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 he's, he's uh, it's a B E something something word. I apologize for the the complete mind blank that I'm drawing right now, but um. The point is that it's eternally in this state. Um, it's not something that took place the way that humans do it, um, this relationship between Father and Son. And when it comes to the Holy Spirit, the point I'm bringing up is that the Holy Spirit is spirated. He's, he's, he's sent eternally from the Father and the Son in this, in this relationship. That's his, that's his role and function, is to allow the Father and the Son to send him forth to 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 be this agent um to fill us as believers to to empower the the body of messiah uh to do the work that we need to do to to remind us of the words of the master okay so um the son is eternally in this this uh relationship with the father and that word that i'm drawing a blank but i'm going to flash out on the screen for you guys so you guys know what i'm talking about but the spirit is in this eternal relationship with father and son uh, inspiration form is the, the technical term that's used. Uh, these, this is language that's, that's kind of added to the, uh, the creeds is why I'm drawing a blank. It's not a, it's not a script. It is a biblical word, the word I'm, that I'm losing right now, but, um, uh, for God so loves the world that he gave his only be, begotten son. There's, that's the B word. I believe that I'm losing, losing B E begotten. The son is eternally begotten of the father. I say eternally because if I were to have a child, that child is brought into, he's begotten by me, but not eternally. There's a time and place when the child is brought into, the, into existence. Um, in other words, he moves from um, my loins into the world, right? Loins of my wife, actually, but you get the picture I'm trying to describe when we say parents give birth to a child. God is Jesus' father in the sense that he was, the son was begotten, but not in the the one-to-one correlation with the way that humans are brought into the world. You understand what I'm saying here. All right, that's going to do it now for um, uh, this portion of Exploring the Shema Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. If you'll notice in my um, commentary, you'll see that we reached the end of section segment, section 7, uh, Who or What is the Holy Spirit passages, revisiting the passage about the Holy Trinity. Now we're ready next week to do an excursus. Essentially, we finished the study and we're ready to look at this excursus, which is kind of like a, um, a little digression or an appendix. Uh, it's not necessary to follow through this part of the study, but it's an, an excursus that I did decide to bring into the study. It's entitled Ruach Within versus Ruach Upon. We'll look at that next week. But that'll do it now for Exploring the Shema Discussions on the Issues of Trinity.
Let's turn briefly to the uh, liturgy. We'll read the liturgy, then we'll watch the video, and then we'll be um, uh, done with the night's study. And I'll accelerate this a bit. Uh, for the liturgy, this is a fan favorite. Um, I'm going to read the English of Genesis 1, 1 through 5. Um, you'd be amazed how many requests I get for this particular liturgy. Even though I've read this over and over again in the past, uh, for some reason it becomes a fan favorite. So I'm happy to oblige and, and read it again for you. So I'll read the English this week, and next week we'll read the Hebrew. Um, I want that a little bigger, don't I? Do I? Yeah, let's make that a little bigger. All right, so in English, uh, Genesis 1-1, ESV, starting on the left side of the screen right there. Uh, this is familiar for many people who've read their Bible. In fact, it's memorized by most. Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Verse 4, And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Let's go back and read the Hebrew, starting on the uh, right side of the screen right there for you guys. Reading from uh, right to left, just like Hebrew reads. The Hebrew says, Brishit bara Elohim et shemaim ve'etaaretz. Verse 2. tohu Oops, what am I doing? I said I wasn't going to read the Hebrew tonight. Ah, ha, ha. Okay, let's stop right there. We're not going to read the Hebrew. Read the Hebrew next week. Let's turn instead to the um, John passage and read some English, right? So English tonight, Hebrew and Greek next week. So just wait for it. Uh, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we read this in conjunction with Genesis 1 because of the similarity in wording in the beginning, right? It says uh, in, in both the uh, English renderings in the beginning. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God, speaking of this eternal word. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4 of John 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And we will read the Greek of that next week. But that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's turn now to the uh, video. We'll watch the video. I think it's like five minutes long. And then after the video is over, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. You ready? Here we go. Admittedly, many believers, both Jewish and non-Jewish, confess to having a superficial grasp of the subject of sacrifices and atonements when compared and contrasted to the once-and-for-all sacrifice of Yeshua, our Messiah. While not exhaustive, these short YouTube videos on the topic of sacrifices are nevertheless meant to hopefully nudge the average Christian towards a deeper and greater appreciation for this central part of our Bibles. So that's my kind of short introduction. Short Questions, Short Answers by Tor Teacher Ariel and eBible. They pose the questions, and I like to provide some of my own answers. And here's our question for tonight. What does it mean in Leviticus 23 when it says, You shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord? 
The chapter passage referenced only briefly mentions fire offerings, Leviticus 23, 18 and 37. However, fire offerings were very common in ancient Israel, and as such, the first chapter of the book of Leviticus outlines the logistics for them. So let's talk briefly about that. Quote, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. End quote. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Of course, reading it from the same liturgical passage we used earlier. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent's meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And this is a little longer than we read in our liturgy, but there's something here in this passage that I want to highlight for you. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire, on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. End quote. That's Leviticus 1, 1 through 9, is rendered from the ESV. Okay, let's talk. Five types of offerings that we're actually finding in the book of Leviticus. We've got the Ola bird offering. We've got the Mincha grain offering. We've got the Shlamim peace offering, the Chata'at sin offering, and the Asham guilt offering. And this uh, takes us from Leviticus 1.1 all the way through Leviticus 5, about verse 26. Important by comparison is that the first three could easily be considered free will offerings brought before God by anyone at various times in the life of anyone in the community, and they didn't address atonement for ritual sins, even though we saw the word atonement. This means since they did not atone for sins of the flesh, the kind that stained the sanctuary of God, they could easily and essentially be brought as an expression of the thankfulness of an individual. This is an extremely important point that we're going to develop as we go through the study. The last two, however, that were on that list of five were required to make restitution for various sins in the flesh, that is, ritual sins. Such offerings, the chata'at and the asham, are referred to as expiatory, that is, they atone for sin, they restore fellowship with God that was breached because of sins. So, very important for us to make that distinction. In conclusion to this short study, we know that our God was pleased with worshipers bringing burnt offering, burnt offerings, because the burnt offering, the fire offering, was completely burned up on the altar that it was completely offered to God with nothing eaten by the worshiper. And the result was said to be reach nichoch ladonai, that is a pleasing aroma to the Lord, an aroma that's satisfying or a soothing aroma or a, a restful aroma as we look at this um, Hebrew word nichoch, from which we actually get the word for Noah as well. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel, subscribe to my YouTube channel, and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. That'll do it for the video. Let's dismiss in prayer. Father, Abba, I bless your name. I'm thankful and grateful and blessed 
to be in this place where you've called me and equipped me to be able to teach, to share the uh, words that I study with other people via this mechanism of the internet, YouTube, iTunes, podcasts, uh, website, uh, etc. Um, Lord, it's 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 a challenge at times um, to. Um, go through the materials and uh, come up with something meaningful for people to digest. But at the same time, I'm so blessed uh, because I'm being utilized by you. I'm being put in places where I can speak out, where I can be challenged, where I can grow, where I can be an inspiration, um, where I can be a source of, of, um, of knowledge and wisdom to someone who uh, uh, interacts with my resources uh, online. And so I'm thankful just to uh, to play this small part. I pray that as people interact with my materials that you are the one that they recognize as the authoritative one. Yeshua, you are the one that receives the glory and the praise for the lives that are changed as a result of people interacting with the uh, commentaries that I write. I don't want to increase. I want to decrease. Lord Yeshua, you increase and I will decrease. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to share with the students. Continue, as I always ask, to raise them up and strengthen them where they're at. Help them in the situations that they're going through. Give them a hope. Give them a sense of urgency about the matter to share this good news with people that they encounter. Help us in our respective, what we call circles of influence, where we're meeting people and talking with them about these issues that are relevant. Help us to find a way to share our testimony of what we believe about God and about Messiah, about the Bible and the biblical worldview with people who don't have that same perspective. So what I'm asking is to give us divine appointments. Uh, continue to go with us during these difficult uh, and stressful um, pandemic and econ economic and, and uh, political times that we live in, Lord. Um, a lot of uncertainty in the world, a lot of doubt, disbelief, darkness in the world. And it's only by trusting in you and, and holding fast to your word, being filled with the Spirit and walking it out. That's the only way we're going to make it, Lord. We've got to hold fast to the head, who is Yeshua. We've got to stay connected to the vine, who is Yeshua. We've got to do it, or... Um, we're going to be victims. So thank you, Lord, uh, that you are the um, the faithful one that we can hold to. Um, take us safely through this week. Bring us back together next week so we can do this all over again. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Amen.